Well, thank you, Pastor David. And good morning, everyone. Received a couple of curious glances today as I typically would be up here leading the musical portion of worship. But as Pastor David mentioned, I get the uh, wonderful task of sharing the living and powerful word of God. And I'm incredibly excited for that. Uh, Addressing the elephant in the room, I've never stood up to preach before. So (laughs) we're going to see how this goes. Uh, But I I pray that as I preach a sermon based on grace, that that is exactly what I'll receive this morning. (laughs) Well, part of the reason that I'm so excited this morning is because I I get to live into the mission of this church in a different way, and Pastor David had alluded to it, sharing good news, uh, news that we believe has the power to transform this city in every single way, which just sounds amazing, right? Right? But what does that mean? You know, what does the transformative power of the gospel look like? You know, when we think about questions like this, we look to the ultimate example we have, right? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, all year we've been studying this theme of finding life in Jesus' name. We've been making our way through the book of John, and Jesus has shown us, and he'll show us again today, that he has a long track record of transforming the lives of those he encounters by meeting them in their brokenness in ways that are unexpected and even unusual. So I'm gonna start off and and break the ice with a little bit of audience participation this morning, then we'll get into the text. I'm gonna tee up an easy one, or it should be an easy one. Uh, Who here has ever made a mistake in their life? Okay, and anybody not raising their hand is, is lying in church. So we've all made a mistake. We've all made a mistake in one way or another. And when you made a mistake, you probably expected at the very least a negative reaction, maybe even a, a consequence or a harsh punishment. And so if you're tracking with me so far, try to think of a time you made a mistake, you anticipated some kind of a negative consequence, but instead you were met with forgiveness or compassion that left you shocked or had you scratching your head a little bit. You think of an example for yourself. I'm going to share one of my own. So we're going to travel back in time here, and eventually we're going to go about 2,000 years back, but we're going to veer off for a pit stop in 2004. Why? What's so great about 2004? Mainly nothing. But for 14-year-old Justin, this was a big year. So I want to take you back to this particular May morning, which was uh, me celebrating or about to celebrate the biggest achievement to my life, of my life to this point, eighth grade graduation. So I'm going yeah, to paint the picture for you. I wake up and I get into my freshest outfit. And what that looks like would be brand new khaki cargo shorts uh, with enough pockets to pack for a week-long vacation, Uh, short sleeve plaid button-up shirt, and my hair spiked up with so much gel and aerosol that a a balloon or beach ball would just stand no chance coming into contact with just boom. And to top it all off, I had InSync, it like dates me to even reference them, but uh, InSync inspired frosted tips. And for those who are unaware, <laughs> the ends of my hair were bleach blonde. Uh, a photo exists, but I wanted to be taken somewhat seriously today. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna spare you uh, that for now. So I'm, I'm ready to go. 
nobody else in the house is anywhere near ready. But uh, I can't let this, I think you call it hype energy, can't let this hype energy fade. I, I got this momentum going. And so I decide while everyone else is getting ready, I'm going to grab the car keys and pump up my favorite jams. So I, I uh, crawl into the uh, passenger side. I turn on the car and dial to my favorite station, which is, again, making me feel ancient. Uh, and I am met with static and interference. And this is not going to do. Not today. Bright idea. I'm about to graduate eighth grade. Uh, I look down and I say to myself, I can just shift from park into reverse until this reception clears up and I'll just put it right back into park. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Well, that was a huge mistake, but I was about to make an even bigger one. I went from park right past reverse into neutral, typically no harm, no foul. However, the driveway was on a hill. Uh, and so I begin going the opposite direction I'm anticipating, and I panic. And so what I rely on in that panic is what any 14-year-old boy is going to rely on, my own brute strength. So I get out of the car, and I attempt to stop it from going down the hill. And I don't know, I'm going to carry it back up the hill for all I know. Well, to my surprise, and nobody else's, that didn't work at all. <laughs> really bad idea. So I get back into the seat and I see what I think are my only two remaining options. There is a willow tree to my left and there's a creek straight ahead. Uh, the third option would have been to crawl into the driver's seat and gently apply pressure to the brake with my foot until the car came to a complete stop. I didn't think of that. So into the willow tree I go, bam. Is that really surreal moment where something terrible has happened and nobody else has seen it yet, nobody's reacted to it. I stumble up the driveway to the front of my house and everyone in my family, except for my dad, who thankfully was still sleeping at this point, they behold this look of, I can only imagine, like somebody, uh, a cross between somebody who's just seen a ghost and a dog who's just made a mess on the carpet in the other room and they're coming to tell you about it. Here I am and we go and behold the consequences of my terrible decision making. And the decision at that point was to spare my life temporarily while my dad was still sleeping and, and get me to school in the other car. Uh, it was a half day because the afternoon, the eighth grade class had all chipped in. Limousine was going to be out there to take us, not all that far, Funset Boulevard, you know, play some arcade games. I see, yeah, Funset Boulevard and pizza. So all I needed to do was make it through a half day and get into that limousine. Well, I got through the entire morning. I get to the entrance of the school. Limousine pulls up. I am 100 feet away from freedom. I get to the door of the limousine. A mountainous shadow is cast over me. I am in darkness now in more ways than one. So I've had a morning up to this point. Uh, I, terrible decision-making, learned my lesson, graduated from eighth grade. Now a much wiser version of Justin appears. And I decide that the wisest thing to do is to jump into the limousine and tell the driver to go, floor it. <laughs> he did not. <laughs> so after a couple of moments of stubbornness and fear, I step out of the limo and face my father and what I presume to be the end of my life. And as I brace for whatever is about to happen, I receive a hug. 
surely I was dead already. Uh, that was the only explanation that I could come up with to be met this way. And, and my dad uh, crouched down to me and he said, you made a mistake and we'll take care of it. But now I want you to go. I want you to have fun with your friends. Just completely unexpected grace where I, I expected anything except for that. Well, the big idea here on a much larger scale is that Jesus shows us grace and truth. And that is not the pattern of the world that we live in today. You know, where judgment and condemnation are fully expected, Jesus has shown us and he'll show us again today that his way is a different way. So now, if you take open your uh, apps, your Bible apps, your Bibles, we're gonna turn now to John 7, 53, very last verse in chapter seven, and then we're gonna go into chapter eight, verses one through 11. What I'd like to do is read the passage in its entirety and pray over it and then head back in. So starting with chapter seven, verse 53, uh, the woman caught in adultery. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the good, good Father that you are. We thank you for the forgiveness, the compassion that you show us in our flaws, in our brokenness. You love us beyond all measure and we gather here today to learn more about how that could be. The way that you set before us is a way that is so foreign when we think about the world that we live in. So as we study your word and the way of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you will give us uh, ears to hear and hearts to receive the fullness of your word. Pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, I'm gonna take a drink. So this is a powerful story and one that you may have heard even as just a pop culture reference. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. One thing that I want to call out, you may see a little bit of a disclaimer in your Bible that 
this story was not included in the very earliest manuscripts, versions of the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, later translations, it floats around in the book of John. We see it a couple times in the book of Luke as well. So while it's debated where the story belongs, who the author is for sure, the main thing is that this is widely accepted and believed to have happened. And I think that we'll see, when you think through the, the book of John up to this point, it's gonna be consistent with the person of Jesus and the encounters we've seen with Jesus. So for those who may not have been with us over the last few weeks, maybe you're, you're visiting and, and you're stopping by uh, and thank you for being here. I'm gonna do a little bit of a recap. So kind of like a, a Netflix recap as you're heading into a new episode, uh, but you don't have a remote to, to skip over me. That might be in, maybe in post-production, we'll add that. So we've seen Jesus preaching in Galilee. He took a lunchbox full of bread and fish and multiplied it to feed thousands of people. We later see him casually walk on the water and calm the raging seas. And now, him and the disciples are heading into Jerusalem during the festival of the tabernacles. What is that again? It's a week-long celebration that commemorates the Israelites' journey from the wilderness into the promised land. So what I can most closely equate it to is a supersized version of EAA. It, major traffic jams in Jerusalem, uh, but it's great for the small businesses. They, there are people out in tents this entire week. They're dancing, drinking, celebrating. And up to this point, Jesus has been intentional about being private in the way that he approached the festival because he knows the Pharisees and teachers of the law are out to kill him. However, he has now made the decision to come into the public eye and begin preaching. And he is the buzz of the festival. And so as we reapproach the text, people have spent the entire day listening to him and they are, they are thirsty for more. So let, let's reapproach the text here, uh, 753. When they, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So Jesus has spent all evening the Mount of Olives, praying. And this is a theme with Jesus. We saw him do this after preaching to the thousands, the disciples, everyone dispersed. Jesus went a different way to pray. He does the same thing here, and we'll see him do this again, uh, most notably in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to his very crucifixion and death. And so Jesus is setting that example, setting the way that as we approach those decisions in life, trials, tribulations, we ought to do it in quiet prayer. Petition. So he's ready to go. Uh, Jesus had his cup of coffee, went out for a light jog, and he's ready to preach, which we almost expect from Jesus. What's just as impressive, if not more so, is that there are droves of people showing up at this hour to hear him preach. Presumably no other reason that they should be up this early, but they are hungry to hear him. They know he's going to be there. And amongst the people that know that he's going to be there would be the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So in the middle of his preaching, this is verse three now, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And the author comments that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So a pretty rude interruption, 
right? I, I, can you imagine being at a, a convention or a conference watching a keynote speaker? Thousands of people and a group of men burst through the door, dragging a woman behind them, throw her down center stage and say, forget what you were talking about, should we kill this person? What? <laughs> and the fact that this was such a, a public interaction and confrontation was intentional on both sides. Again, the Pharisees know Jesus is going to be here with thousands of people around, which is great in their eyes. It leaves no shortage of witnesses for the trap that they're setting here. And Jesus, you know, does Jesus do anything by accident? <laughs> no, he knows. And so the stage is set. Now let's put ourselves in the position of the woman for a second. You think about being caught in the ugliness of your sin. What an example of utter public humiliation, embarrassment, just the scoffing, and, and the, you can almost sense the glances and the atmosphere that changes here. The other thing to note is that she's alone. Now, the last time I checked, it, it takes two people to commit adultery, and as a matter of fact, the very law of Moses that the Pharisees are referencing here states very clearly in Leviticus 20 that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So we see, and Jesus certainly sees, the hypocrisy. He sees the true intentions of their hearts. So at the center of the story is this trap, right? So let's break that down for a second. What's at stake here? So the Pharisees come in and ask, should we stone this woman or not? If Jesus says, no, do not stone her, he violates the law of Moses, and they're gonna use that to discredit him as a teacher and as a rabbi, undermines his entire ministry. Or he can say, go ahead, stone away. And if he does that, he violates Roman law by taking capital punishment into his own hands. So if we boil this down to more simple terms, the Pharisees come in and say, Jesus, do you hate the government or do you hate the Bible? Anyone recognize the divisive nature of that question? Do we see that anywhere today? So what does Jesus do? His sermon is interrupted. He's called out on the spot and is being urged to respond. Well, the latter half of verse six, we read, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay, little anticlimactic, that you don't, not something that you expect there. He's been ambushed in the middle of a sermon. His reputation, not to mention this woman's life, is at stake, and he stoops down to write on the ground. Now, what could he be writing at a time like this? You know, was he taking a break to sketch the sunrise? Was he you know, challenging the Pharisees to a competitive game of tic-tac-toe? Probably neither of those. A couple of theories exist. Some believe that he was writing the sins of the accusers. You know, other, others believe that he was writing their names. It's a reference to Jeremiah 17, which states, the names of those who turn away from the Lord will be written in the dust. No matter what was written, Jesus accomplishes a couple of things just by this very action. First, what he does, he takes the spotlight off of the woman in her shame and embarrassment, draws it somewhere else. The other thing he does 
diffuses this tension. He gives space for folks to reflect, maybe for these accusers, give them a chance for their consciences to catch up with them. But they're not going to let that slide. The Pharisees aren't going to sit there forever. They came in with a mission, so they keep pressing him. Verse 7, when they kept questioning him, he, Jesus, straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, they didn't have microphones at this time, but if they did, Jesus would have dropped it. Without escalating the situation at all, he meets their condemnation and their judgment with unexpected truth and turns the decision back to them. And all of a sudden, they're caught in their very own trap. How embarrassing and infuriating that must have been for them. So what are they going to do now that the pressure's on them? Well, let's see in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away. One at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. These accusers have nothing to say. They have nothing to stand on. So they leave, one at a time. Now, can you imagine thinking from the the viewpoint of the woman again, bracing for a consequence which, in this case, is having rocks thrown at you until you are dead. Bracing for that, And the space empties. The noise fades, and she is left with uh, the eyes and the presence of Jesus. (laughs) Now, no one's been able to stand on the condition that Jesus set forth. No one there was sinless and could have thrown a stone. Oh, wait. One person could have. Jesus himself, right? the one who indeed was without sin that could have thrown a stone and struck her dead, did not. Why? Well, because as James, brother of Jesus, would later write in his letter, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus wanted to motivate this woman to change her life, and he didn't want to do that with fear, condemnation, bribery, or any other tool of manipulation. Instead, he meets her with mercy and truth, truth that she needed to hear, not all of it she wanted to hear. Uh, Did Jesus at the end of this say, hey, you know what? Just go head back to what you were doing. You do you, do what feels right. Certainly not. He holds her accountable the way we've seen him do countless times. You think about the woman at the well, healing of the paralyzed man. Jesus gives this charge, go and sin no more. Jesus hates sin. Sin is the entire reason that he's been sent and is about to suffer an agonizing death. And this is the the part of the person of Jesus I feel like we can sometimes forget, or perhaps we have too soft a view sometimes of who Jesus was and is. In addition to being infinitely kind, gentle, patient, Jesus is also relentlessly just. 
He is a warrior of truth. He is truth. So when he approaches her, he does it with equal parts, grace and truth, which is the only way. You think about grace without truth. It lacks accountability. Truth without grace. Here's where we breed judgment, condemnation. One without the other does not leave you with the environment and the attitude needed for that kind of transformation. So back to this big idea of Jesus approaching us with grace and truth in our brokenness. This woman's story should remind us of someone else's. If the gospel is true, and we believe that it is, this woman's story is your story. It's my story. It's the story of everyone who was standing there that day. That's why they walked away. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? But here's the good news. For this woman and for us, three things I'll I'll leave you with. The first is that you are more than the sum of your past mistakes. I'll say that again. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. In a world full of labeling for others, we label ourselves, I'm nothing but a screw up, an addict, a cheater, a liar, a mistake. You're not a mistake. We make mistakes. You're not a mistake because God doesn't make mistakes. Your flaws don't define you. God does. I am who you say I am. The second point is that Jesus came to save, not condemn. We read this earlier in the book of John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul would later attest to this in his letter, 1 Timothy 1:15, which says, "Here is a trustworthy saying which deserves full acceptance." Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Who here hasn't felt that way in their darkest times? And the third and final thing is that Jesus makes a way. Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus did not end this woman's story he gave her the chance to write a new chapter. And the only way he could treat this woman this way and us is because of the cross. It's because he was about to suffer and die and cover those sins with his blood. That's how he made a way. Receiving that embrace from my father after one mistake that I made, it transformed my decision-making, and it transformed the way that I looked at mistakes and forgiveness. How much more transformed ought we to be when we consider that our Heavenly Father wraps his arms around a lifetime of sins 
Every sin you and I have ever committed and ever will commit has been covered by the blood of the lamb. And now there is no height nor depth that can separate us from the love of God. Amazing. My prayer today is that we respond to this good, good news by sharing it in our testimony and by changing the very way that we encounter each other and ourselves, for that matter, in our brokenness and in our flaws. Let's choose the way of grace and truth, the way that is different and set apart from the way of this world. Let's choose the way of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and who we are in you. God, your love is beyond measure. In a world that defines us by, by what we do, you tell us who we really, really are. Help us to live out of the forgiveness that you have shown. Help us to model ourselves after the way of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the amazing sacrifice, the amount of love that it took to cover our sins by sending him into this world to pay the ultimate price. We thank you, Father. It's in your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.